0: So, we are finishing chapter 19, Lord willing, this
1: evening, uh, which, as you can see in our chronology, is right at the very end uh, before the uh, millennial kingdom. This is essentially the end of the present world. Um, This isn't the end of the world totally, uh, because God still has a purpose and he still has a plan that needs to be fulfilled. Uh, on this earth, and that is going to include all the promises given to Israel of an earthly land and a king um, to rule over them, and his plan for the whole world as well, that a man sit on the throne over this earth and rule on God's behalf, and we're going to see that fulfilled in Christ. I found a, a quote that I quite liked this week, so I included it here. It's by Ed Heinzen says in this one passage alone, all the hopes and dreams of every believer are finally and fully realized. And now that's not only for the church, but this is for every believer who has ever been saved by placing their faith in the promise of
0: eternal life uh, from God. And so in Isaiah 64, we see this as well, the hope of, um, of the
1: prophet Isaiah and the people of Israel in about 600 BC. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. This is really the point in history that all of history past has looked forward to. And it stands out in the book of Revelation as well as that uh, consummation to which everything has been pointing from chapter one all the way through chapter 19. Everything else is going to be uh, concluding information. This is the climax of the whole book here, the return of the king in victory. And if you remember back about two years ago now when we began studying the book of Revelation, I said this is really the fifth gospel because the gospels are the the uh, narrative of christ's life on earth and if you notice when you read through the gospels they all end abruptly because there's still that question of what about the kingdom what about the kingdom and he says he's going away when he's coming back so this is the conclusion to all four gospels they're not complete without this book and they're not complete without this chapter so this is uh, the climax of the fifth gospel <clears throat> And it opens in verse 11 with, I saw heaven opened. Now, if you remember to last week, uh, verses 1 through 10, we saw that uh, John heard a lot of things. He heard a loud voice. He heard this. He heard that. Now he is seeing. Uh, These are not just uh, auditory, but these are auditory and visual uh, things that he is um, receiving through prophetic visions. Now, in Ezekiel 1, we see a similar thing. It came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month. While I was by the river Kevar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Now, it's always interesting these heavens opening and the seeing visions of God. The vision of God, he's not seeing in his vision the heavens opening, but this is how he's receiving this vision. It's the heavens or the the uh, the present dimension that we're in, I guess you could say, being rolled back to reveal what is going on uh, in the heavenly sphere. So this, uh, these heavens are being opened, and that's how he's able to see behind the veil, uh, those things that would otherwise be
0: invisible to him. Hey, Dane. Yeah. You're sharing your screen? Yeah. Can't see anything. It's just black to me. Oh, let me try sharing again. I just got kicked out and came back, but I only see I. Oh, now I see your Uh, screen. screen. Yeah, I thought it was just me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Yeah. No problem. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's too bad. The graphics on the first few were pretty good um <laughs> anyways um i believe here, here i'll show you this one there this is our, our present one end of the present world that's what we are looking at ed Heinson quote the isaiah 64 passage the structure we're looking at here is the
1: return of the king in victory that very last one and then our verse we're starting with i saw heaven opened and the, the prophetic terminology of the heavens opening is the veil being pulled back
0: so we can see what's going on in the invisible realms. This also comes up in John one fifty one.
1: Uh, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is Jesus telling his disciple Nathaniel. That he is going to be allowed to see into
0: those invisible realms um, as part of his ministry together with christ excuse me and in matthew 3
1: 16 at the baptism of christ after being baptized jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of god descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold a voice out of heaven said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is uh, a very integral point in Christ's ministry uh, where he moves from being, um, or where he uh, begins his earthly ministry. And here he moves into a different transition in his earthly ministry again. We see the heavens opening. And this time, instead of the third person of the Godhead descending from the heavens, we see the second person of the Godhead descending. And of course, Christ is the culmination of prophecy. This was the previous verse. Actually, the heading on here is wrong. It's not Matthew 3.16, but Revelation 19.10. It was the verse we left off with last week, where the angel tells John not to worship him, uh, but to worship God alone, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all pointing towards Jesus, and it's all revealed from Jesus as well. And this is what John sees when heaven is opened, he says, behold, a white horse. Now, this is the second time in Revelation that a white horse has come up. Last time, back in chapter six, verses one through two, in verse two, we saw, I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, about maybe a quarter or maybe a fifth of the commentaries on revelation the interpreter will take this white horse from revelation chapter six as the same one in chapter 19. uh hopefully you remember back um, about a year ago when we studied chapter six and we went through all the different reasons why this white horse in chapter six is not the messiah But the false Messiah, the counterfeit Messiah, the one who is desperately trying to look like a Messiah but comes short because his intentions are foul. Right here within the passage, though, we have one of those bits of evidence um, pretty clearly. It's the Lamb who broke the seventh seal. It was Jesus who was the actor in heaven. Um, He is not also the actor on earth, he is not in two places at once in his human body. Um, He is physically confined to the flesh now, and he is presently in heaven and will remain so throughout the tribulation period. He will not be waging war on earth in his physical body throughout the seven-year tribulation, but the false messiah government will. He will come promising to be like a messiah, to be the messiah, eventually calling himself God, uh, but his government will come through uh, through a faux peace and quickly move into war, into famine uh, and pestilence, and finally into death. Um, so we see the governmental side of the tribulation period in chapter six, and it begins with one who
0: tries to look like Jesus, the Messiah. And I might uh, point out here, no. I guess I won't, that's okay.
1: Revelation nineteen eleven. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. This was not said of the one in chapter 6. This is uniquely true of Jesus the Messiah. He is faithful to all of his promises. He is faithful to those in heaven who have been calling for justice and righteousness to reign. And he is true. He is not a false Messiah. He is the true Messiah. He is the one upon whom all have waited throughout all of history. In chapter 3, verse 14, we saw this title also, um, speaking to the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this. And if you remember the beginning of the creation of God, uh, we interpreted that as the source of the creation of God. God did not create um, Jesus, but he
0: created through Jesus. Um, It was the second person who was the agent of creation. And then finally, uh, that one who is sitting on the white horse, his
1: name is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This is the purpose for which he returns. Now, Isaiah 11 is a parallel passage. Uh, with this uh, concept of judging in righteousness and coming back to wage war. Um, Some will say that this is um, not in accordance with the God of the New Testament, but more like the God of the Old Testament. It's important to remember that they are not two different gods, but God acting in a different way with uh, people, just like a parent will act in a different way to a maturing child. Uh, But eventually, the strong arm of justice has to come down so just because he is um, given the gift of a uh, period of grace here does not mean that he has changed in his character he is still the same god of the old testament his character has not changed um, but right now we are in a special dispensation of grace where we should have been wiped off the map uh, centuries ago uh, but so that the uh so that he might bring more to salvation that has not yet occurred we are in grace so isaiah 11 reads the shoot uh, then a shoot will spring from the stem of jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit that is looking forward to the messiah the eternal descendant of david the spirit of the lord will rest on him spirit of wisdom of understanding of counsel of strength of knowledge and of the fear of the lord that is the um, seven aspects of the holy spirit Uh, that we saw in revelation chapter four the seven spirits of god you might say Uh, this will rest upon jesus and that did when jesus came um, in the flesh he was empowered by the holy spirit he did not draw upon his own divine power but he let the holy spirit the third person um, animate his uh, fleshly body to empower it to do the work of god that was a unique Aspect of Christ's walk on earth, when He comes back in His second coming, He comes in His own power. But Isaiah 11:3 says He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and He will not judge by what He sees, nor make a decision by what His ears hear. But with righteousness He will judge the poor, so He's judging according to God's righteous standard, according to God's will, Um, and He will decide with fairness for the uh, afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with breath, the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now, importantly, in Hebrew uh, prophecy, which is written in prophetic form, they uh, provide two different lines of the same statement. And this helps to narrow down on an interpretation uh, because. Words don't have meaning unless they are meaning in context. And when you have two words playing off each other or two statements playing off each other, the intended meaning becomes very narrow. Uh, It doesn't leave as much room for interpretation. So they would provide two lines with the same meaning said in a different way. And that is actually how they rhymed. They didn't rhyme with sound, they rhymed with thought. Um, So it's two parallel thoughts. So this line, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That is really one idea stated two different times, so you could see how exactly that righteousness is done. It's done by means of fairness, and fairness is achieved by seeking righteousness. Um, He will strike the earth with a rod from his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Uh, That will be important when we get to interpreting some of the imagery that we see later in this chapter. It's not going to be a wooden interpretation of an actual physical sword coming from his mouth, but John is drawing off of this vision here of Isaiah 11, where the words, the righteous judgments that come from his mouth, cut just like a rod or a sword would cut, and they will have that physical um, effect. It will actually physically uh, destroy those who um, who are not found in Christ's righteousness At his return. And then this parallel idea righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. That's
0: the same thing said twice righteousness and faithfulness uh, drawn intimately close together here.
1: We see the same thing in Psalm 96. And in fact, an inordinate amount of Psalms are all about this moment. Um, As I said in our little teaser for the class um, over text, Almost every psalm, like it's, it's over 50% of the psalms, refer to this exact point in history. Because every time David is afflicted, every time David um, seeks the righteousness of God and wants to see that on the earth, he doesn't look to a temporal time in history when this is going to take place, sometime that he can hope for seeing this, though he does hope to see this. He looks forward to the final culmination where all unrighteousness is put away. He is looking forward to the final cleansing, the final judgment where the true ruler of this earth is going to come and reign perfectly. So we want to do the same thing as David looking forward. We always want to keep our minds settled on this point of Jesus' coming to rule. And when he rules, it will be a rule of righteousness, of faithfulness, of fairness. It will be absolutely perfect. So almost every psalm. Looks forward to that point. Whenever the topic of righteousness comes up, he is looking for that moment of righteousness where Christ returns or where the Lord uh, comes to the earth and reigns. So he writes in Psalm 96, verse 11: Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all it contains, let the field exalt and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth he will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness psalm 9 verse 7 but the lord abides forever and uh, he has established his throne for judgment he will judge the world in righteousness he will execute judgment for the peoples with equity the lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So we see two things playing off each other here. The Lord is coming in righteousness, in fairness for judgment. He is coming with a sword, a rod, and it's going to slay those who um, who have not attained to his righteousness. And there's nothing that we can do to attain to his righteousness, but his righteousness must be imputed to us. Uh, through faith by grace. And so only those who have received him as the Messiah, as the Savior, are going to be held uh, uh, from judgment. So in the pink here, we see the Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. That's going to be a key idea here when he returns, because he's returning for a very specific purpose. Yes, he's putting away Unrighteousness, he's putting away all sin and evil. Uh, But he is doing this for the cause of the people um, who are on the earth and uh, who have come to believe in him, specifically Israel, who is stored away at this time in Petra. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So he's coming for salvation and he is coming for judgment. Now, this brings up a very important doctrine in understanding scripture. Uh, We really have two peaks in world history, uh, at least two peaks of judgment. We have the flood, and we have the end of the tribulation period, the return of Christ. And it actually draws draws these ideas very close together. What we mean by civilizations, uh, there is the standard definition of civilization, any advanced state of human society in which high levels of culture, science, industry, and government have been reached. But biblically, when we're speaking of the doctrine of civilizations, this is a civilization which is a period of history which begins with God's grace, provision, and deliverance of believers in time of disaster and terminates with maximum degeneration of mankind to a point of self-destruction. So in other words, a civilization goes full cycle, just that same cycle we see at the beginning of um, the book of Romans, uh, the only systematic theology um, in one book in scripture. Where you start with God's righteousness on the earth, his perfect creation, and it moves into degeneracy through human action and eventually he is going to have to terminate that civilization through judgment. There are three civilizations in human history. Um, One has already occurred, we are presently in one, and another one is yet to come. This is Peter's outline of world history, past, present, and future. In 2 Peter 3.5, he writes, the heavens also existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So there is a distinction between the world at that time that was destroyed. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly men. That is the present heavens and earth that was present for Peter, and it's still present for us. And it ends with fire and the destruction of ungodly men. Now notice here, he's paralleled these two ideas, the end of the world by water and the end of the world by fire. Now it was for the destruction of the ungodly men that we are waiting today for the Lord's return. And what was it that that brought the flood on? It was for the destruction of ungodly men. Now, when we move to 2 Peter 3:13, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that's the goal. We actually have a type
0: or a foreview preview um, of the coming judgment uh, in the narrative of the flood.
1: So that we see, moving from one world to the next, that it comes by means of judgment. And God always preserves a remnant through that judgment. He preserved a remnant on the ark, moving from the world that was to the present world. And He is going to preserve a physical mortal remnant on this earth, uh, moving from the present world to the world to come. That is why Christ is returning at this time. That is why He comes in the clouds. That is why He comes against a mortal army, um, so that He preserves those mortals on Earth. And we'll see why when we get to the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, But just like it says he has to come uh, for the sake of the elect. Otherwise, they would have all been killed. He is specifically coming at that point in history, in order to preserve physical life. And just like a lifeboat was provided from the world that was to the world that is a lifeboat is provided from the present world to the next. Unless someone is found in the cross of Christ, they will not survive into the world to come. So let's look at the pattern that is given in the antediluvian civilization. That means before the flood. In the uh, the civilization that was, the world that was before Noah, it began with two believers, Adam and Eve. It began with the perfect environment of Eden. Everything was set up for them, just as God had intended the earth to be. Man introduced corruption and death through sin. Man's corruption reduplicated and intensified every new generation. We saw those sins getting worse and worse and worse until it got to the point of Noah where God had to wipe it out. Man threatened his own existence through angelic interbreeding. Man threatened to become man no longer. In other words, if God did not put a stop to it, man would have bred themselves out. Or if you don't believe in the angelic interbreeding, which is how I interpret Genesis 6, um, they're on such a murderous streak and a corrupt streak, um, at least, that they are going to run themselves into extinction, and this was not God's plan. So he has to preserve them through judgment. So number six, God judged by destroying all corruption, and only Noah and his family were preserved. So when God comes in judgment, he is not coming to a Disney cruise liner that is just enjoying uh, the world around it. God comes to judge the Titanic it is already sinking, it's already on its way down, and he is sending a lifeboat. The rest of the boat has to sink. It has to go down, but a lifeboat is how God is going to preserve humanity so that his purpose of having a king rule over this earth and of redeeming redeeming mankind by the seed of man uh, can actually be seen so that the promises of God can be true. He has to preserve man. So that first civilization where man had corrupted themselves and they corrupted themselves um, so terribly that a judgment was needed in order to protect them. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually.
0: The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. <laughs> <clears throat> the Lord said, I will blot out man, whom I have
1: created, from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's lifeboat. Noah was not saved spiritually by building the ark, he was saved physically. He was saved because he already was spiritually saved. His faith was already in God at the time he enters in the story. He is already a believer. He is already redeemed and regenerated um, by means of his hope uh, and God's grace. And so God preserves the lifeboat. Whenever God comes in judgment, he comes after a period of grace, and he comes after a means of salvation has been provided. The ark brings us into the post diluvian civilization after the flood, which is the present world that we live in today. This entire civilization began with eight believers. Notice that every single person who got on the ark was a believer. Every single person who got off the ark was a believer. God restarted once again, only allowing believers, those who were saved by faith and then saved physically because of dependence on their faith. They move into this new civilization. They enter into a cleansed environment. It may have been bare. It may have been washed clean, but it had no corruption in it. The curse was still over this earth. That is a protection that we have on this earth. uh, That's at the end of Romans 8. You can see that it was subject not willingly, but because of him who subjected it so that he might uh, bring about the new heavens and the new earth so that sin can be totally and fully done away with, but they enter into a newly cleansed environment. The sin nature remains in mankind. Sin is given an opportunity in Noah and Ham, just like it was given an opportunity in Adam and Eve. So this is that uh, very odd sequence uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 9, where you've got the sin of Ham. And you might wonder, like, of all of the episodes in in, uh, Noah's remaining 400 plus years. Why this one random episode? Because this constituted a second fall of man. The first civilization, its fall began the moment that Adam and Eve ate the apple or the, the fruit, whatever it may have been. In the second civilization, we get this report because we see that this civilization is also going to have to pass away. Right at the very beginning, we see that this isn't God's end plan. This isn't the end game. This is a lifeboat that we're on currently, and the lifeboat as well is going to go down. The world quickly descends into corruption at Babel. In fact, this one's fascinating because the first civilization, it took 1600 years for it to get to the point where God finally said, all right, enough's enough. We're wiping this clean, and I'm going to send a lifeboat. Here, it took about 99 years from getting off the boat to the Tower of Babel, where God has to once again step in and preserve mankind through judgment. It only took 100 years. This is rapid degeneration. So that uh, corruption at Babel, already within 100 years, was getting close to needing another uh, flood-like judgment in order to protect mankind, but God provided instead a safeguard against self-destruction before it was too late. This civilization is going to end in the Great Tribulation, and that is because God sent that safeguard, and the believing remnant of Israel will be preserved. Now, there's a few important ideas in here. Israel, God is preserving a nation, not an individual family this time, and that has everything to
0: do with the safeguard that God put in. You see, he put in. <clears throat> see, I put this too far out here. Here we go. And this was God's safeguard. Genesis eleven seven. come, let us go down and
1: there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, from this, mixed with Genesis chapter 9, when Noah got off the ark, God instituted human government for them. And when that became corrupt through Babel, god perforated human government he created a honeycomb i call it operation honeycomb god's lifeboat that he sends the lifeboat and the idea was not having a single lifeboat sent off the uh, off of the titanic you could say the titanic of the sinking world and corruption rather than one lifeboat because one lifeboat can sink if god needs to judge He doesn't want to have to judge the whole world at one time. He divides the nations. He sets borders between nations so that nations operate within their own culture. And when God has to step in to preserve mankind as a whole, he's able to judge an individual nation. Deuteronomy 32.8 tells Israel about this plan that God has. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, looking back at the Babel event, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now we see elsewhere in Deuteronomy and in Genesis uh, that the number of the sons of Israel that went down into Egypt were 70, and then the names of the uh, different tribes that have different languages in Genesis chapter 10 are 70 different nations. So he began with 70 different nations, not including Israel. Israel came out of the nation of Arfaxad, but he had 70 different nations, and then he created Israel. Israel would be that special nation, God's own creation, uh, that he would preserve through the entire civilization. When we get to um, Revelation, we see all of these Tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations dealt with once again. And these patterns don't um, occur anywhere else in the New Testament as frequently as they do in Revelation, because God is bringing into judgment all the nations at one time. That is something unprecedented that He has not done yet in this civilization, because He hasn't done that since the flood. This is the end of the world as we know it. He deals with the tribes, tongues, people, and nations. At times, he addresses the kings, uh, the leaders of those tribes, the the great leader of the family group, and then as it continues to degenerate, uh, stretching into Babylon's return, uh, which we looked at in chapter 17 and 18, uh, it uh, turns to the multitudes. <clears throat> now, that all occurs, Genesis 9, 10, 11, and then God is Setting a precedent in uh, Genesis chapters 18 and 19 of how he is going to deal with individual nations. Just like when he establishes the church, he makes extreme examples of some, like he does with Ananias and Sapphira. He makes an extreme example of Sodom and Gomorrah, showing them that God is able to judge, he is able to judge entire nations without destroying the entire earth, and that this judgment. Looks a lot like the judgment to come. Again, we have a prefiguring of that judgment. All right, so heading back here to this post-Diluvian civilization, we actually have um, prefigurements of how this generation or this civilization is also going to end. Hebrews 11 looks back at Enoch, uh, who was about... uh, trying to remember, it was either a thousand years before Noah or 600 years before Noah, uh, was Enoch. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. In Hebrews eleven seven we get Noah. By faith Noah, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He condemned the world because there was now one means of salvation, and that is physical salvation here. And once he got on that ark and God said, this is the one ark I'm preserving. This is how I am saving you from this civilization into the next. Everyone who was not on it was condemned to physical death.
0: These give us a type of how God deals with these civilizations. He pulled one group up
1: before the wrath came, and he preserved another group through the wrath. This had all to do with what generation they ended up being born in. Perhaps if God was ready to end the civilization back with Enoch, he would have preserved Enoch. But instead, God pulled Enoch up, preparing him from even seeing the day of Noah. Uh, we don't know how bad the corruption was in Enoch's day. It may not have been. Um, I mean, it was probably pretty bad. The angelic corruption may not have begun at the time of Enoch, but it was close on his heels, if anything. Um, the the corruption that ended up needing to end that civilization for the means of preserving mankind in their mortal bodies. But there is a an ark already prepared and we've seen that as well. We saw that back when we studied chapter 16, that there is a place in this physical world where God will send his faithful to preserve them physically until he ends the judgment. This is the place where all those who believe in Jesus, at the midpoint of the tribulation, he is going to send them a sign in Jerusalem, which is the uh, The entrance of the Antichrist or the false Messiah into the temple and says, uh, I will be or I am God. Matthew 24 tells us that that is the sign. Uh, They are supposed to flee Jerusalem and they are to head to Petra, to Basra, to be protected in God's sheepfold, which is the meaning of Basra. This is essentially an ark, a physical ark, just like it was a physical ark uh, that protected them from that previous civilization. This is where mortal Jews will go to be preserved during the tribulation period where the wrath of God is not going to touch them. And in fact, more than that, they're going to be protected from the wrath of men
0: there as well. When the Lord does return, uh, he is going to finish this judgment just like like the flood
1: lasted for a whole year and people may have died at various times. Points in that flood. Some may have died right at the first hit of the waves, and others may have survived a few hours or even days or perhaps even weeks. Uh, But in the end, the flood did not end until every single unrighteous person was dead. The same thing goes for the tribulation period. The end of Daniel chapter uh, 12, we see that there's a disparity of 75 days between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the kingdom. No one is going to survive those 75 days who does not have the righteousness of Christ. Matthew 25, 31 gives us one of those judgments. Uh, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the Gentiles will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will slay or say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed uh, of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those will enter into the kingdom. Uh, Verse 35 through 46, I believe, go on to explain how the goats, the uh, unbelievers, the unrighteousness are slain and cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 13:26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds. So the angels are going to participate in the return of Christ. We're going to look at that again later. Uh, their specific task in returning and participating with Christ is that they gather his elect from the four winds. This is Mark thirteen before any mention of the Church coming into existence had ever been on the lips of Christ. the elect could only have ever meant Israel at that point. They will gather Israel from the four winds from the furthest ends of the earth and to the furthest ends of heaven. They are uh, they are functioning in bringing the resurrected Israel back. this physical earth as well all of the jews who are scattered throughout the physical earth are going to be gathered together in the land and those who have died who are part of the remnant of israel those believers um, of israel who are not part of the church
0: they will be resurrected at this point as well and brought back to the land but those living jews still have to pass under the rod So in the sheep and goat
1: judgment, we see that all uh, living, mortal Gentiles at the end of the tribulation are going to be judged. They will not be allowed to enter into the new civilization if they have not taken on the righteousness of Christ through faith. In fact, the two parables that precede the sheep and goat judgment, the parable of the talents and the parable of the ten virgins, those are the same thing, but for the Jews. Um, Because they're parables, I chose not to use those texts as illustrations here because they require a lot more contextual interpretation, so I went right to the source texts for this one. Ezekiel 20, 36 teaches this doctrine explicitly. Uh, The prophet writes, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So only those Jews who are alive during the, at the end of the tribulation period, only those Jews who have received Jesus as their Messiah, will be allowed to enter into the new civilization, the millennial kingdom.
0: And once again, Jesus does the footwork for us, comparing the transition from the
1: present civilization into the new with the transition from the previous civilization into the present one. Matthew 24, 37, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. He may have said there in more ways than you know. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the son of man be. And now there's arguments in here. Well, if the tribulation period had already occurred, then why would they be uh, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, etc., etc.? First of all, look at Genesis chapter 6. The context of marrying and giving in marriage is immoral and unrighteous marriage. So invoking marriage here in this passage and then saying it's just like the days of Noah shows that this is an ungodly rebellion. And also uh, this eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, going about regular everyday um, activities. Uh, we forget that the the uh, judgments of God didn't come spanned out at equal points throughout those seven years. The first one, in fact, just looked like governmental corruption and war that raged. We had um, a few uh, cataclysmic um, an earthquake uh, in the seventh uh, seal, and then the trumpet judgments came probably in rapid succession right at the middle of the tribulation period. Then we probably had three and a half years where there's no heavenly judgments from God. The world starts to get back to life as they knew it, extending that corruption as they knew it. They've got a new king, a new ruler, um, and this one is claiming to be a God. God has returned to this earth. He's restoring it. Three and a half years, they think, all right. We have our world, we have our king, we've just got this one problem, the Jews. The second three and a half years of the tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the day of the Lord. It is specifically the wrath of the Antichrist against the Jewish people, because it's the responsibility of the Jewish people to enthrone the king of this world, because God has preserved them and prepared them and created them for that very purpose. And so the Antichrist, to preserve his reign, is going to come against the Jews. But those people who are not Jews for three and a half years are going to think the world is going on just as it always did. We can think of uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, where's the promise of his coming for all things continue just as they were. The tribulation period is going to be a time of unprecedented judgment, but not every day is going to see that sort of judgment. They're going to come in short bursts at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. And the end, those judgments could not have extended throughout the entire three and a half years. They probably come in the last week of this tribulation. They've had a pretty hellish week when the Lord returns, but that whole period is the day of the Lord's return. And so, yes, it catches them off guard. It catches them off guard, and they don't see the Son of Man coming. Matthew twenty four forty. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Also, notice this goes back to uh, rudimentary technology. Uh, we do see uh, some results of the government uh, overstep back in Genesis 6 when we saw uh, created inflation, and then in Gen- or Revelation. No, Revelation 6, and then in Revelation 13, when we saw that the economy is going to be uh, preserved only for those who have aligned themselves with the um, Antichrist, this Matthew 2440 is probably referring to those who have not taken the mark, but some of those who have not taken the mark will also not have put their faith in Christ. Uh, for uh, I don't know, maybe they'll take this off YouTube if I say this, but There are plenty of people who are refusing the vaccination because they believe that God created their bodies and they're protecting that temple of their body. There are other people who are not taking the vaccination as a middle finger to the government. One stands on religious principles on faith. The other stands on humanistic principles. Both have the same result of refusing the human, earthly, governmental mandates, but only one has the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. So here you've got two different people excluded from the government economy. They're back in the fields. They're not participating because they haven't taken the mark of the beast. But only the one who's placed his faith in Christ is going to be taken away from this judgment. Uh, Two women grinding at the mill. Both have refused the mark of the beast, but only one has received uh, the sealing of the Holy Spirit by Christ. And so, one will be taken in judgment, and the other will be left. The other will be left to go into the new civilization. And that is the kingdom civilization. It begins with believers only. Tribulation saints who have survived physically. This will be primarily Israel, preserved in Petra. There will be stragglers and remnants throughout the rest of the world who did not take the mark of the beast, and who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those will be preserved physically to enter into the new kingdom. The earth's environment will be made perfect, not just wiped clean, but reestablished. The curse will even be partially removed. That did not occur in the previous civilization. We still have the same curse as Adam and Eve suffered. This time, King Jesus will rule over the earth, and Satan will be imprisoned. This is going to be a new civilization, and there is going to be new principles of government. Death is going to be rare, though still present, because all of those um, mortals who enter into the kingdom are going to be capable of producing more mortals, and each one of those are going to need to receive Jesus who is going to be a present and physical reality on the earth. They will need to receive his gift of eternal life, and some will refuse that. Uh, And labor is going to be prosperous. All this comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 65, I believe. Uh, But many will choose to rebel against King Jesus, and after a thousand years, once again, he is going to have to terminate, or he is going to choose to terminate, That um, civilization and mold it into the eternal state, uh, which is not considered a civilization because it does not end with rebellion. But here, Revelation 20, verse 7: when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. This is the rebellion of the mortals who entered into that civilization, the future kingdom civilization who did not have Satan influencing them throughout that whole civilization they did not have the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, uh, tempting them to sin, they had nothing but the flesh, and this is to show that we in our flesh are still not capable of producing righteousness. the same argument that Paul makes in Romans one through eight. Uh, so, even in that civilization with a rolled back curse, a perfect environment, you know it really puts to shame the argument of people are a product of their environment. No, this puts them in a perfect environment and shows them that people are a product of people uh just like just like Seth was produced in Adam's image, so we are produced in the image of sinful man, um and we need to have the new nature through Christ, um, in order to have the righteousness of Christ. But in Revelation 29, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So those many who choose to rebel against King Jesus at the end of the kingdom civilization, King Jesus will conquer the entire army and he will do so in no time flat. Only believers will remain at that point, and all will be translated into the eternal state. There will not be any mortals translated into the eternal state. It will only be those uh, who have a resurrection body or a translated body in the glorified state. So the doctrine of civilization to prevent the destruction of the human race The Supreme Court of Heaven destroys by cataclysmic judgment the entire unregenerate and degenerate category of the human race. Man, left to his own devices, is self-destructive. If God did not interfere, the human race would have long gone from this earth. So that is doctrine of civilizations um, that is an important precedent for Revelation 19. 11, this is why Jesus is returning. He is ending the previous civilization, the one that we are in now. It is the biggest transition in human history since the flood, and in fact, it exceeds the flood. <music>